You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Um, um, welcome to our session. I'm Bob Akabasade, CEO of Toronto Centre for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. Uh, we're ta talking again about how central bankers and supervisors support climate risk and green finance and manage these risks. Uh, since our inception in 1998 as a nonprofit organization, Toronto Centre has trained more than 15,000 central bankers and supervisors from 190 countries and territories to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. In 2016, we began incorporating climate change in our capacity building programming because of the substantial implications for global financial stability and risk of crisis from climate change. Indeed, we were one of the very first organizations that looked at capacity building. To this extent, Toronto Centre congratulates FSB's roadmap that led to the establishment of the Climate Training Alliance for Supervisors uh, with the participation of standard setters, BIS, and, and a whole bunch of other uh, um, positive actors. Naturally, Toronto Centre stands ready to contribute the lessons we have learned and support uh, this alliance in every way possible. Uh, in the aftermath of the de devastating impact of the global pandemic on economies and people's livelihoods, this proactive crisis preparedness is essential for all countries to mitigate against the impact of climate shocks. This is the fourth webinar this year since June 2021. 20, uh, so far, we have heard about the challenges and ongoing efforts on climate risk by national authorities, international standard setters, and networks such as the uh, Basel Committee and the Network for Greening the Financial System. Speakers highlighted the importance of tackling climate risk, as well as the necessity of international coordination information sharing to learn from each other. Now, it is indeed a great honor and pleasure for me to welcome our distinguished speakers. They are leading their nation's supervisory efforts to tackle these challenges and our great international influencers. His Excellency Alejandro Diaz de Leon Carrillo is the governor of the Central Bank of Mexico. He was also uh, uh, chosen as the best governor of the year. Sabine Moderer is the member of the executive board of Deutsche Bundesbank. Welcome Sabine, welcome governor. Toronto Centre's mission is generally, generously supported by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, Jersey Overseas Aid, Comic Relief, and the United States Agency for International Development. We will have three rounds. I will pose three questions to each speaker, and then I will take questions from the audience. Please use the Q&A tab to submit your questions. I would appreciate if the audience uh, directed their questions in a very precise and concise way rather than long statements. 
Also, I'm pleased to say that we have basically at quite a lot of countries here. I think I've counted uh, over 60 countries attending in all uh, representing all the letters of alphabet all the way from Argentina, Antigua to Zambia and Zimbabwe and, and every letter in between. So welcome everyone. So my first question is going to go to Sabine. Sabine, how can central banks integrate climate risks into their monetary policy frameworks? Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you, Barak, and thank you for uh, inviting me to speaking to this distinguished um, uh, audience. Um, let me put your question in a little bit uh, broader uh, set. I think the first question is, in which, which areas in general um, does climate change a role um, when you look at our mandates or other tasks. And there, I think it's clearly, as you mentioned, monetary policy, especially when we look at, you know, prices, price dynamics, you see the energy pricing uh, prices will due, also due to climate policies uh, increase. You see food prices in Brazil rising. And so uh, pricing also outcome will play a role and therefore you know we have to reflect this in our models and in other um way um also asset purchase uh, programs will be affected i might come uh, to that uh, later and uh, in other regard we also have the mandate of financial stability there it's clear that we have to look at climate change and the impact uh, on the economy on the financial stability what we there do or intend to do is to set up different uh, scenarios uh, so as to have an understanding what kind of you know political especially political decisions will have what kind of impact on the economy or you know missing um, timely actions what will this mean for the economy and the third pillar which is very important as most of us have also the mandate for banking supervision and there of course climate change play will play a crucial role and we in the euro system we start with stress testing also with climate scenarios and we will ask our financial institutions to mitigate their financial risk that comes from that come from um, climate risk. Thank you, Sabine. If I may ask you a follow-up question, uh, would it be reasonable for me to uh, deduce from your answer that climate risk is no longer an exogenous risk, but is really considered as a mainstream risk for financial supervisors? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. So we, we you know, you, you just mentioned the network for greening the financial system set up three and a half year, years ago by central bankers and supervisors. And you know, the, the main reason why this was set up was because so many um, central banks and supervisors have, um, have seen climate risk as a financial risk. And we started with the Banco de Mexico, but also with uh, Bundesbank and others to establish this network with only eight uh, members, you know, having this idea, oh, this is a major threat, financial threat. And now we have 95 members. So that shows a big acknowledgement of the recognition of climate risk as a financial risk. Thank you. Uh, Governor, my uh, next couple of questions are to you. Let me start by talking about the fact that there are three essential risks when it comes to climate change. 
uh, especially in the financial sector, the top two are physical and transition risks. So in your view, what is the relevance of physical and transition risks associated with climate change for emerging and less developed economies, financial systems? Thank you. Well, uh, first, uh, it's, it's an honor to be uh, in this uh, panel. Babak, thank you very much for having me here. And, and let me say hi to Sabine. Let me start saying that the world is exposed to risks that even though we know that they are present and they could materialize, they are so infrequent that uh, they tend to be poorly understood, underappreciated, and inadequately managed. For example, we cannot argue that the current pandemic was unforeseen, but still, we were not uh, prepared to prevent it or even to mitigate its costs. Climate change is a highly complex, infrequent, but very material risks that affects all our countries and sectors. We need to develop more detailed plans and a deeper understanding of its impact to the economy and the financial system. This is not, I think, hypothetical. Physical and transition risks are already occurring and are part of the financial authorities' agenda. We need to upgrade our economy's resilience and prepare the financial system to manage these risks. Although uncertainty remains about the exact severity and time horizon of some of the climate change consequences, small changes in temperature could have severe nonlinear consequences for our well-being, and delayed action is likely to significantly increase risks and costs. Climate change can have major effects on our economies and financial system. This involves directly central banks, as Sabine was mentioning, and especially if we consider that our mandates include price stability, output stability, and also financial uh, stability mandate. The emerging and less developed economies, uh, climate change uh, will be highly disruptive, at least in four dimensions. First, it can induce a significant reallocation of capital flows. The Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, which was only launched last December, has $43 trillion uh, um, uh, resources in signatories that represent almost half of the assets managed globally. This conveys a significant reallocation capital risks for emerging markets. Second, it can disturb trade and supply chains and also FDI. Mexico is a very open economy. We have, we have more free trades agreement than any other country in the world. 12 free trade agreements with 46 countries, including the USMCA, uh, and free trade agreements with the European Union, the European Free Trade Area, Japan, Israel, and 10 countries in Latin America. We are among the 10 largest recipients of foreign direct investment. Roughly 50% of FDI comes from North America, 40% from Europe, and 10% from the rest of the world. Misalignment in decarbonization pathways could affect demand for Mexican products and also the attractiveness to invest in the country. Being a very open and integrated economy, Mexico faces potentially significant transition risks. Let me go to the third, which is higher car carbon prices. Carbon prices are critical to incentivize energy efficiency gains and a reallocation of resources from high to low carbon activities. Estimates of the global shadow price to reduce emissions typically project the need for substantial increases in carbon prices. This can entail significant transition risks for carbon intensive emerging and developing economies which lack domestic investment resources and fiscal policy space to cope with this challenge. And finally, in terms of financial distress, I think physical and transition risks can have a significant direct, indirect and contagion effects 
uh, in our financial systems that we need to address promptly by uh, financial supervisors and regulators basically to mitigate this potential systemic impact. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. And uh, as you were talking, I was uh, thinking about the fact that there are some similarities with what you said and the situation in Canada, like Mexico. I mean, first of all, we are North American free trade partners, I guess, but the name has changed now, right? It's a different name, whatever. I forgot, I keep forgetting. After USMCA. Exactly, exactly. And also, like yourselves, we are a very much of an export-oriented country, and it's in our interest to have a lot of export uh, agreements with others. And but what's interesting and striking is that as governments uh, make significant strides in addressing uh, physical risks, right away they're thrown into transition risk, right? It's just one of those things that is back to back. So very important. So let me continue with you. So your institution, Banco de Mexico, is a founding member of the NGFS. So congratulations on that. What do you think should be the approach of central banks in emerging and less developed economies for financial institutions and markets to price climate-related financial risks better? Well, um, we have established a solid institutional framework to foster this agenda. Uh, last year, uh, the Mexican Financial System Stability Council established a sustainable finance committee to assess the risks that sustainability and climate change may pose to the financial stability in Mexico. And the committee set up, set up a, a roadmap and four working groups on sustainable taxonomy, capital mobilization, risk management, and disclosures and standards. The committee has also proven to be a useful platform to engage with the private sector and, and the private sector associations are observers to a committee, which I think it is very useful. Also, our efforts uh, have been concentrating on leading financial institutions in four areas. One is addressing data gaps, particularly regarding financial relevant data, generating consistent, reliable and comparable data, first on climate related risks and then on sustainability more broadly, I think it is critical. Second, promoting the adoption of relevant standards and metrics that help us understand and tackle these risks. I think the IFRS uh, uh, movement in developing a baseline for global reporting standard uh, that builds up on the TCFD framework and the work of sustainability standard setters is essential. And uh, this will involve a, a wide range of stakeholders in the process, uh, including emerging uh, economies, which I think it's, it's very important. Third, enhancing disclosure of financial and non-financial firms in our jurisdictions. And I think we, we should foster three things. One, corporate disclosure commitments. Second, having taxonomies that reflect differences on the needs and priorities of each country, but also allow for international comparability. And third, to promote broad adoption of ESG criteria and foster transparency on the methodologies of ESG rating service providers. And fourth, I think that we need to upgrade risk management practices to include climate-related risks among financial institutions. I think we should uh, carefully and continuously monitor traditional financial risks. Uh, climate-related risks should become part of that routine risk management. Uh, uh, and I think the regulators uh, need to understand that capital requirements uh, may be not, not necessarily the best way to approach uh, these new risks. But, and I think that we should double down on using stress tests and long-term scenario analysis uh, for these climate-related risks. I think the NGFIS uh, scenarios provide a very good starting point in this respect to, fa to facilitate comparability. 
And all financial intermediaries should be subject to a minimum disclosure and risk management practice related to climate risks. And uh, also be aware that applying climate-related regulation only to banks and certain financial institutions could have significant unintended consequences, including disintermediation and risk shifting. So we think it is very important that it applies to all and not just to the ones that we can regulate more closely. Yeah, and one of the points that you talked about is disclosure, and I think you probably have been encouraged that the G7 back the mandatory disclosure. So um, there seems to be a lot of momentum being built up right now in these general areas that you have talked about. Sabine, let's come back to you and uh, your, uh, um, your areas in Europe and elsewhere. What is the role of data and disclosure in addressing climate risks? And what can central banks and supervisors do to improve the availability of data? So I guess that's sort of related to that disclosure thing you were talking about. Go ahead, please. Yeah, sure. So data is the new good, and this is also true for when you uh, want to analyze the threat of, of climate change, right? And actually, you know, data are crucial to really either to identify, you know, the scenario and that, or to make the to prepare the um, scenario analysis. We have done this in the NGFS or also on the European level. And uh, we will continue to do so because, of course, the, the lack of data uh, also um, means that we have a lot of uh, uncertainty. So what we need is better data, more data. And so the question is, how do we get this data, right? And um, so and your question is very um, uh, crucial. What can central banks actually do to you know, enhance the availability of data so what we do in the Euro system is that we uh, just last week decided that we will uh, require from 2023 on um, uh, for our asset purchase programs and also for our collateral um, a kind of transparency when it comes to climate risk. And the question is, why one, well, we, we, as central banks, we could set our own requirements, but we decided to ask rather the government, the European uh, Union, to set up decent uh, disclosure rules so we can rely on that. So, and I think that uh, in doing so, uh, center, in requiring as a central bank data or you know disclosure from either the uh, the issuers or for, from the banks that uh, bring in collaterals, or what we also do is we do ask in the future the credit rating agencies um, for transparency. So to tell us, we ask them to tell us in the future how did you integrate climate risk into your credit rating? So this all shows that data are crucial. They become more and more important, that we need more data. Therefore, disclosure um, regimes are crucial. Let me just put, point out one thing. What I think uh, is, is very important is that we do have comparable data, you know? And therefore, it is also very important that we have on a global level, a certain understanding, what kind of data do we new, uh, want to have and how do we manage to let them be a little bit, at least a minimum uh, comparable, right? Sabine, thank you. I think it's actually a very important point. And not only has systemic uh, 
stability considerations, but also I think for consumer protection. And just to give you an example, if you go and you look into any fund that talks about ESG, probably the European situation is the same. There's such a massive hunger from the public to go into these funds. But when you look at the ETFs and mutual funds, you really don't know what, what is what, right? And sometimes uh, the same bank or institution that they beat up on another area is on these, this fund, but they get a much higher management expense ratio. So that's just the one example. So the work that you're doing is so critical to clarify and bring those standards and create a sense of uniformity so that us as investors, as the public, at least uh, know what are we getting into when we invest in our retirement or education plans for our children and all that. So yeah, it's very important. Yeah, maybe just to add one point, I think disclosure and, and we as central banks forcing disclosure is so crucial because so far, the um, uh, climate risk as a financial man is not reflected as it could be in the market. And this has to do with an intransparency. And therefore, I think it's also up to us, at least to the extent we can do this, um, to foster disclosure and transparency. Yeah, and also it connects back to an earlier point that the government governor made about ESG. So governor, let me turn back to you now to ask you to please elaborate on how uh, we can generate capital mobilization investment in climate mitigation and adaptation in Mexico and uh, basically the emerging market countries in general. Thank you. And what, do you see any challenges there? Yes, um, the, the agenda for the mobilization of climate-related finance is very much, I think, focused on advanced economies. In emerging economies and let, less uh, developed countries, issues and strategies that are needed uh, to advance the, the agenda uh, in the region are not necessarily uh, adequately being identified. And let me put one example of high concentration of green investments in advanced economies uh, that can be seen in capital markets by the issuance of green and sustainable uh, related bonds and loans from 2015 to 2020. Um, excluding China, the share of emerging markets represented only 11% of the total volume uh, globally. And including China, that number uh, race increases to 18%. So clearly we are lagging behind in terms of uh, financing deployment in, the, in this space. With the right incentives and policies, emerging markets could make a substantial contribution to mitigation efforts. Also, given the current initial conditions, any amount invested in climate change mitigation in emerging markets and lower uh, uh, income countries can have a larger decarbonization impact and thus a larger, a larger positive externality than in developed countries. A dollar invested in emerging markets can have a higher mitigation potential. Uh, does it make sense to create the conditions for such investments to be made? Uh, it would be, I think, unfortunate uh, that uh, we underinvest in this area. And according to an IMF uh, recent paper, many of the world's lowest cost mitigation opportunities exist in emerging and developing countries. Thus, I think it's uh, in the global best interest to put in place the, the mechanisms to channel the resources uh, this way and to revert from a bad equilibrium with high financing costs and insufficient green investment uh, in emerging and developed uh, economies to a climate-friendly uh, funding resources at scale for these uh, countries at genuinely low financial costs. And we, I think we need to acknowledge that emerging countries and, and uh, less developed uh, countries have less space to spend on climate-friendly projects than even they had before COVID-19 pandemic. So the policy space is shrinking, the need is larger, 
And we need to look into ways to unlock attractive international funding from advanced economies at low uh, interest rates, uh, I think in, in exchange for credible uh, decarbonization efforts. This will, I think, will increase the resilience and move the agenda forward. And now which type of resources and which type of instruments can, can be put into play? I think that we can develop blended finance structure that can unlock private sector financing to the transition to a low carbon economy. I think that we could use uh, loan guarantees schemes as a way to de-risk some of these solutions. You can even say that uh, exim banks in advanced economies could design uh, new programs to unlock some of these green investments. Uh, and also that uh, multilateral development banks could play a role uh, at putting some of these loan guarantees in order to leverage some of these uh, uh, opportunities. So I think we need to be uh, very flexible. I think we need to be mindful of the opportunity and channel more resources uh, into the region. Governor, I have to tell you, uh, you get the Toronto Center Oscars for really compacting such a vast area of information in a very, very concise way. Thank you. And you touched on few important things. I mean, this almost seems like a geographical uh, climate justice issue here. You have climate change makers. Uh, many of them are in the advanced developed countries, not exclusively, but there, and climate change takers. Many of them in emerging market countries, but not exclusively. But then what is the role of each and you know the pandemic? So thank you for connecting those dots. I think that's going to come in very handy in our Q&A session as well. Sabine, let me turn to you. Uh, for the last structured question, I already see a number of questions, so uh, we're very eager to get there, but you know, obviously take your time on this one. Which measures can central banks take to help to scale up green finance? So how do we actually create some scale here? Thank you. Well, the question, first of all, is, uh, is this the task of central banking to scale up green finance? I think, um, I think we have to distinguish between our mandate price stability and uh, as I explained, here are areas where climate change matters and we have to mitigate the risk. And uh, this whole, you know, our task when it comes to a monetary policy is a risk approach. So it's a reactive tool we, we or tools uh, we, we are doing. On the other hand, we do have um, tasks and, and some central banks have mandates where you know um, there is room for scaling up green finance. Let me take you know third-party portfolios, own or pension funds, and uh, all, all stuff like. There, I think it's clearly up to us to take over responsibility and invest also um, sustainable. What I think is very important, and I think one of the questions that was also raised is what actually, uh, how can we um, raise the awareness of, you know, this urgency, the urgency of acting for the, towards the government or the political decision makers. And this, I think, um, uh, really re relates to our massive analytical capacity, right? We do have the credibility and we do have data, a lot of data. And we do have the analytical power. So let me take just the scenario analysis. They clearly show that you have to act now and uh, to avoid too little too late. So, you know, showing this to the governments really means something, right? And I think 
your question, how what you know, how can we scale up green finance? I think this is really crucial that we use our capacities and competencies and our credibilities and to show uh, or to prove the urgency towards especially the political side. Great, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. So for the, that was very good. Uh, for this uh, questions from the audience, uh, Governor, I think the, I'm gonna try to see the first one. You have addressed some of it, but it's an opportunity for you to see if anything else that you wanted to add. What are some of the challenges that emerging and less developed economies may face in managing or assessing climate change risk? So is there anything you would like to expand on what you have said already? <laughs> well, uh, probably I, I would highlight one of the key things that was discussed this weekend uh, in Venice. Um, and obviously climate, was, climate change was a key uh, issue throughout the meetings. But uh, the IMF uh, suggested the introduction of a minimum carbon price, price system. Um, and, and then here the question is, um, how can we generate, generate traction for this? The adoption of a one-size-fits-all approach can, can face, I would think, uh, several challenges. And in this regard, adjusting uh, these uh, potential minimum price uh, for income per capita and carbon intensity could improve uh, policy coordination and convergence. And I think the challenge we're going to see uh, how with uh, different uh, levels of development, we can have uh, these uh, minimum carbon price that it is much needed to really uh, set the price signal to reduce uh, carbon usage and, and, and carbon emissions, I, I think it's critical. And, and I think this is one of the challenges that we're going to face. How do we put in place the right incentives for all countries in a way that we all uh, move in the right direction at the right speed, at the speed that it is uh, uh, attainable for each of the range, different range of, uh, of countries and uh, in a way that it is uh, inclusive and, and, and I would say comprehensive. Yeah, maybe I, I just would like to add because I, I fully agree. Um, I think the, well, first of all, I think it's a major progress that at least at the G27, it is accepted that uh, implementing a decent climate uh, um, um, CO2 tax or carbon tax is the most efficient way of cope with, with climate risk. But everybody is aware of this political difficulties, right? Especially in countries uh, developing and emerging markets, but also in the developed worlds, right? So the social tensions that you know will go in line or might go in line with uh, um, uh, rising energy prices are, for me, the most important thing to tackle. So, and that was also um, one of the major. Uh, a point that was discussed at least at the uh, climate conference of the G20 as we really or how to implement a social net globally uh, to allow you know the, the the transition and the adjustment but you know uh, not uh, and to you know convince people right and therefore I think social the social aspect is, is crucial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And remember, we were talking um, yesterday in preparation for this and, uh, you know, central bankers are under a lot of pressure by civil society, by governments. And then there's another question here for you. Let me ask the question and give the context behind it that I think is useful for our audience is how can central banks support broader climate action by government? So if you can pause on that one for a second, 
the way I look at it is governments have the key levers of decision here and key issues that can really affect the change and the speed of the change. So carbon pricing is an example. And one form or another, each government is doing whatever they can, maybe they dragging their feet, whatever, but then it is the role of the central bankers to kind of help understand the impact, the stresses. So how do you think central bankers can, can help uh, governments in trying to achieve their overall objectives and international consensus that's emerging? But I think, and I may, maybe my personal experience is that, you know, pointing out the different scenarios, what happens if they do not act, really uh, um, shows them that they need to act. And then, of course, you know, with the different scenarios, we raise the awareness of what do they have to do by when, right? And the second thing is, you know, it's about carbon taxation. Uh, we clearly can, you know, use our analytical capacities there when it comes to disclosure re regime. And the third point, I think, is also about sustainable finance, um, because uh, I think there's a lot of in the market going on. And the question, at least here in Europe, is, you know, how can we avoid greenwashing? How, nevertheless, you know, can we allow the transition, because what we now see is a tendency to only focus on green products. And, um, you know, for us, and I think that's globally the same, it is about uh, the transformation of the whole economy. Otherwise, if we do not manage to transform the whole economies, especially the, 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 the traditional ones where our wealth focus on or relies on, we, we not manage because then we do have the social tensions. And therefore, I think um, also from the central bank perspective, what I usually do is also to give some advice regarding uh, sustainable finance. Very good. That's a good elaboration on your earlier points that actually helped uh... I'll round it out better. Thank you I so think, much. I, I don't know if I can add something quick to you, Of course. I, I think that um, there's always these uh, like like two two speeds. Uh, one is the, the political movement towards uh, moving this direction, and the other is the financial sector and financial sector authorities. And and, and I think sometimes the political support uh, can have its ups and downs. Uh, I think what it is very important is that we uh, make this part of the standard risk management uh, challenge that financial systems need to address. I think we need to advance uh, through the financial regulation, making this part of the ongoing way to manage risks. I think we need to align incentives in the right direction. We know that uh, politically uh, we, we may have, as I said, ups and downs uh, in terms of support for the for this agenda and for the internalization of these risks, because it includes costs. Uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, we central banks who have a long-term horizon on things, stability is literally defined in a long horizon, either price stability, output stability, or financial stability. So we have to focus on our long-term horizon and try to put the right incentives so that we increase the cost to deviate from the right policies uh, in, the, in the right time horizon. There's another question for, from the Courageous Anonymous. In your opinion, what role could be played by the IMF and other multilateral development institutions to foster the green agenda? You did talk about, you alluded to IMF earlier on, so I'm wondering if that would be a good point for you to uh, elaborate. I, I think not only the IMF, uh, MDBs, or even uh, international bodies like the G20 and so on, I think they have a, a huge role to play. When externalities are involved, 
countries and national uh, agendas are insufficient to get to the right solution and get to the right outcomes. So I do believe that uh, climate change is almost, uh, together with, uh, uh, with these pandemics and, and, and the challenges we go forward, th those are two critical examples on how uh, international coordination and international bodies can be of utmost importance to coordinate us in the right direction and also to force the speed. I think we are behind the curve in terms of what we need to be doing. And, and Sabine was mentioning how uh, we are, uh, we need to move forward and, 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 and in a very decisive way. And I think for that to take place, for that to happen, we all need all the positive and negative incentives to move in that direction. Thank you. There's a question here addressed to both of you. So Sabine, I'm wondering if I can um, start with you. Uh, does Europe have plans to make TCFD disclosures if the governments don't do it, can central banks and other financial supervisors make this disclosure by supervised entities mandatory? And we talked about earlier that G7 backed mandatory disclosures, backed making them mandatory. If this does not happen, uh, we will uh, we will have uh, we will have in that case will we have adequate data? Because you talked about data as well. I'm wondering what's your take on this question. Well, in, in Europe, we actually um, review our disclosure uh, rules, and uh, we it's clear that you know the rules are not sufficient so far, because we leave we left out a lot of sectors or or or, or um, even corporates, and the second you know uh, limit is that uh, usually you know, either you can comply or explain. And the third restriction is that, you know, um, it is not really quantitative, but rather qualitative. And, you know, as long as you do not get the right data, comparable data by, you know, disclosure regimes, it's of no use, right? Because we all know if there isn't a report on page 322, footnote six, saying, well, everything is okay, that's useless, right? So we have to get there. Uh, in, in Europe, we do have, you know, um, a review in place. And uh, furthermore, um, the IFR, uh, IFRS is planning uh, to, to set up uh, global standards uh, based on, on GFCD as well. So I think this would also be very helpful if we see there on a global level comparable extra data uh, in this regard. I do not believe that we will know, uh, see no progress, but still, you know, since the question of what can central banks do, that's what I mentioned earlier. It's like, you know, if we have data requirements, uh, if we buy, uh, take collaterals in or buy assets or, you know, to accept uh, credit ratings, we ask also for disclosure. Um, I think we, we have a lot of market power and therefore I think we do, do a lot in, in this regard. Yeah, thank you. That was a very useful connecting of the threads the way you did that. And I really like your example of what, is, what did you say? Footnote three on page 300. I mean, if you remember, it's not about quantity of disclosures, the quality, right? I mean, we all I know agree. that Enron did not collapse because they did not disclose. It just said there were thousands and thousands of pages. So, so thank you for, for putting that in perspective. Governor, I'm gonna turn the same question to you. Uh, uh, does Mexico have plans to make TCFD disclosures? 
If governments don't do it, can you in central bank have an influence in that? And also what happens if these are not made mandatory in terms of the data that you Well, uh, as, I, as I mentioned uh, before, um, Mexico is very integrated in terms of trade and financial flows. And I would say Mexico uh, uh, development in the last decades have relied significantly on being, uh, I would say, a, an agile uh, and an attractive destination for, for capital. And we need to uh, set uh, our standards uh, in, 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 in harmony with international uh, determinations. And in that regard, I think it, it will do us um, more good uh, than harm to, to move forward in this direction and try to adopt these uh, standards um, uh, the sooner the better. And uh, I, I think we need to, to find uh, uh, the right incentives to, to try to lead uh, in, in this effort and try to receive uh, additional investment, uh, greener investment. I think we, we have a CapEx challenge. I mean, in, we need uh, uh, lower carbon uh, uh, inf infrastructure and uh, production uh, throughout the world. That is a, a, a CapEx challenge. So I think we need to set the right incentives in order to, to move uh, uh, earlier. Thank you. Governor, I want to ask you about, uh, there's a couple of questions here on stakeholders. And I know, Sabine, you have brought it up, but you know there's a lot of interest in this area. So I want to spend just a little bit of time on this because it's a pretty complicated uh, topic. And sometimes some things are worth repeating over and over. So Sabine, what level of collaboration should be there uh, should have should be there among various stakeholders, private, public sector, government, central banks on climate-related risks? Like how can we all sort of get along, right? Rather than screaming at each other from across and then protesting. Like looks like there's a lot of mobilization. So what do you find as a more constructive approach to this? Well, this, this is actually, you know, you cannot talk often enough about that because, you know, we only manage this major threat, global threat, if, you know, we, we work hand in hand. And, and this, go, you know, the public and the private sector have to work hand in hand. So, I mean, we need the governments for setting the right, you know, framework. We have the, the our task of central banks we have discussed. We do have the real economy who needs to manage the transition. We do have the consumers who have to adjust their, you know, their, their behavior. We do have the academia who really has to come up with, with a lot of studies and uh, part of the real economy, but uh, we need really a lot of innovation, right? And that's what we are, especially in Germany, focusing on is how, you know, decreasing uh, CO2 emission, you know, of course, we, we established a CO2 price. And, uh, but it's not only by avoiding, you know, uh, something, but we need technology that allows us to get to net zero by 2050. And in, in countries like Germany, where we rely on really traditional and rather brown industries, for us, innovation, innovation, innovation is key. So what we have to do is to the government has to, you know, enhance the public private partnerships. What we do is we set up uh, uh, funds uh, where we trigger private money. So it's a private partner, uh, a public private partnership via financing uh, projects and innovation. 
Um, and there are so many other things. So what we really have to do is to work hand in hand. Yeah, maybe one thing, what especially for the developed uh, world, is a crucial. But I think there's a big chance also for the emerging markets and the developing uh, countries is what we uh, would like like to do and do already is to force the startups to force the innovation by the upcoming, you know, um, a generation because. This is something where we really see, okay, uh, they might might help us. And I just listened at the G20 conference uh, to um, a lady from from a um, indie company who said, "Well, listen, the most important companies we see today have have not been on on our radar and didn't even exist 30 years ago. So the companies which we will rely on within the next two decades." we probably do not know today, or maybe they even do not exist. So therefore, because we are have facing so, such a major change, right? And therefore I think um, we all have to foster this innovation and to, to work hand in hand. Yeah, Sabine, you're forcing us to think here because we need less people to stand on the sidelines and throw stones and more people to create tools, right? In fact, if you look at some of the scientists uh, uh, predictions. Some are saying that all the efforts in uh, reducing carbon emissions is great and should continue, but we're almost reaching a point where we actually need to have technology that goes and extracts carbon from the atmosphere, right? And so that means that a lot of people have to contribute in this area, right? And it is it is a big effort. And Governor made a reference to the pandemic and uh, an analogy that was explained to me, I think, by uh, Governor Carney is, you know, it's kind of like a Climate change is kind of like a pandemic, moving slower, but there's no ability to self-isolate or to inoculate ourselves with vaccination, right? So we're really, as a species, we're marching towards this. Yeah. Maybe um, one, uh, may I just add one point because I saw that uh, that was about the discussion in the, um, in the chat about capital requirements. And I fully agree that, you know, um, I think banks anyhow are already struggling. But the way the question is, how do we finance this transition? You know, because bank-based uh, financing will have its limits because it's very risky. You know, innovation means or startup scene means one out of twenty will have success, right? So it's very risky, and so uh, the banking industry uh, will have its limits. So what is crucial is the capital markets to develop the capital markets. So I mean, in the U.S., it's clear. For Europe, it's underdeveloped. It's not that mature like in, um, in in the U.S. And so, what for us in Europe is crucial to develop and to deepen the capital markets to allow to finance the transition and the innovation. There's a question here. It's a two-part question. I think the second part uh, is a, a very important one. I mean, both are important, but this one is efforts to incentivize green financing may result in increase of credit risks and consequently credit costs to financial institutions. Some of those risks need to be borne by the relevant stakeholders, including governments responsible. How would you address the issue of such credit risk pass-through to financial institutions, which may potentially affect financial stability? Thank you. Well, let, let me, uh, if I can, uh, some thoughts on the previous uh, reflection, which I, which I think it's important. 
in terms of how can we uh, create a better dynamic to move forward and get away from this finger pointing of who is to blame for where we are and who is to blame for not moving uh, uh, to where we should be. I think we need to uh, acknowledge that it is, there is shared responsibility. And it's not only even uh, at the international level, at the national level, it's not only politicians. At the end of the day, it's not all, all, also the companies that are polluting. At the end of the day, even, even us as consumer have been paying lower prices than what we should because we have been using more carbon than what we should. So we are all part of the problem and we need to be all part of the solution. And so number one, we need to share the responsibility of the problem broadly. And number two, which is related to the question, I think there is a huge opportunity. Uh, the the so-called uh, uh, so uh, global savings glut that has uh, depressed interest rates, uh, especially in advanced economies, uh, throughout the yield curve, even into negative territory, something that was unexpected uh, 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 years ago, I think it, it creates an opportunity that we should be creative in terms of how to mitigate sovereign risks and credit risk of different counterparts in order to have these resources mobilized in the right direction for the right investments for the right reason. And, and this, I think, is where we are still not there. I, I'm seeing a lot of the agenda that takes place more uh, into some countries that have moved, moved a lot and made a lot of progress on, 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 on this front, but not necessarily in a way that it is orchestrated at the global sphere and that includes everyone. And I think, I, I, I truly think that um, with the flexibility to devise uh, the right financial vehicles to mitigate risk to have some uh, risk sharing either with large pools. And we all know these examples. For example, we all, in our, all of our countries, we finance small and medium companies. And we know that you can provide loan guarantees and pool them and you reduce the risk and you can reduce the cost of fundings for uh, small and medium companies. The same thing could happen globally for green investments. And if we do that, I think we could fast forward into a better place. Excellent, thank you so much for that. One question I want to pose to both of you is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to get your perspective on this. Both of you are at the forefront of thinking about these issues, international conversations, and have a very progressive mindset. But there are still folks in the supervisory central banking community and also in the parliaments that you respond to that are very skeptical, not so much about climate change, but skeptical about the role of supervisors and central bankers in that area. Uh, why are you taking your eyes off the credit risk and all the other things that are happening and spending time on climate? Can I ask you to respond to those uh, skeptics? Sabine, uh, let's start with you and then we go to the government. Thank you. Well, that, that's an easy one because, you know, a climate risk is also part of the credit risk. It has become one. So we not even need to implement new risk uh, in banking supervisions, one can do that, but you know, they, they all, you know, those risk or those categories of risk are already existing and this is just a one part of it, right, a new one. And so the, the question is not, well, you know, what are you doing there? You know, th those risks unfortunately matter to all kind of things we do or we are responsible for, be it uh, um, price stability, you know, or be it uh, uh, supervision or be it financial stability, right? So 
you know, but you are absolutely right. Um, <laughs> well, I have also been in a hearing at parliaments and, and those questions arise always. You, it's about mission creep, right? It's about what is your tar, uh, t uh, stake in that, right? And uh, what I must admit is that um, we really have to distinguish between being proactive, you know, promoting certain kind of policies. That's not our task. We are, you know, because we have to keep stick to our mandate. But at the same time, we really have, you know, to, to address the climate risk the economy is facing. Thank you. I think next time someone uh, challenges me on that, I'm going to say Sabine told me the answer is very easy. No, but actually you, you produced a very interesting way of looking at you, right? I mean, we have to move on from this, but there are people who think that, hey, don't take your eyes off the ball. There's going to be another. I mean, they always fight the last war, right? So it's important to look at. Governor, from where you sit, uh, what's your perspective on this issue? Because I'm sure you've dealt with having to, on the one hand, promote these things and defending them at the same time. Well, uh, first of all, as, as Sabine mentioned, I, I think climate change, uh, it will manifest as credit risk. If not, you can ask PG&E in California with one of the biggest chapter 11 that we saw a few years ago. Uh, if you, and and I, I think there's no, there, there's no uh, argument in that. So even if, you, if it's in your blind spot, that doesn't mean that, the, that it, there's something there. So it will materialize a significant credit risk. So we need to be mindful of it. And, and, and the second is, Let's imagine that for any reason, there is still some uncertainty in how bad this could look and there's a good scenario and a bad scenario. I think this is a clear uh, risk asymmetry in a type one or type two error that usually economists tend to mention. If we get this wrong and we don't do anything and the bad scenario materializes, it's gonna be terrible. It's gonna be a disaster. And if we, for some reason, do the right things that we think are the right things, and there is no, not so much need for that, well, we're not going to be in, a bad, in, a, in such a bad place anywhere. So just uh, in, in, in a very crude way of trying to ensure, literally ensure our well-being uh, in, in, in a multi-horizon format, it is very clear that we have to move in that direction. Even if there are some people that think that there is not definite proof about X or Y, I think just the asymmetries of the potential shocks and, and, and so dramatic the contrast of the scenarios uh, is sufficient enough for us to be moving in this direction. Very correct. And also not only that, but I mean, uh, think of it this way, uh, connecting to earlier point that I made, which is central bankers, supervisors, as powerful and influential as they are, they don't have the ultimate policy lever that a government has in terms of setting a price or whatever you are by definition in a proactive, reactive way, if you will, right? Getting your systems ready. So any disaster, uh, the finger of blame will be pointed to you, Sabine, and your colleagues. And when in fact the problem may have emerged somewhere. So it's very good for you to be right on top of that. So we're coming to the end of this and I'm wondering, Governor and Sabine, is there any point that you would like to uh, leave with our audience uh, before I close the session? Your explanations were excellent. Is there anything that you were not able to communicate, uh, you know, Please go ahead, uh, Sabine, with you. Let's start with you. Yeah, first of all, thank you, uh, especially to the audience that you kept all the time. I just have a look at the numbers and I'm impressed. This is all Actually, it's more, more of them than you see. So just to let you know. <laughs> yeah. And my, you know, I, I would love uh, to, to uh, hand out to every country that is not part of the NGFS of the Network for Greening the Financial System. We do still lack a lot of, you know, emerging or developing countries in our network. 
and I really urge you to think about it and you can uh, uh, reach out to me. Why do is that, that so important? Because, you know, you will suffer the most, most probably. And some of your countries are already facing uh, climate change and the effects of that. And for us, that is very important, you know, because this is an experience we, we would integrate into our work. So therefore, if you have the chance to think of it, um, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Sure, and we'll be very happy to promote that message you know, through the network of uh, contacts and courses that we have and governors that we know, but thank you for that. Governor, yourself, uh, you made a very eloquent points here. Is there anything, words of advice, cautions, fear, hope that you want to leave with us? Well, I, I would just say that uh, we know that uh, sometimes the political wins on this agenda can be erratic. And, and I think we have to make the most uh, out of the opportunities when they are aligned and uh, try to safeguard uh, the agenda uh, in, in, in a way that can ensure that uh, moves in the right direction and the carrot and stick incentives so that we can ensure that we move in the right direction. So taking advantage of the good times and, and preparing for less uh, favorable uh, episodes, uh, I think it, it, will, it will ensure meeting the targets uh, on time. And, and I think we all uh, share a responsibility and we all need uh, to have or make ownership of the problem. And I think that will help us all move uh, along uh, in a more coordinated way. Governor and uh, Sabine, I really would like to thank you for your time, but more so than that, you bring a degree of passion, expertise, and even, you know, although you're, you're classy people, you, you have battle scars that you're able to show uh, without shame to the participants. So we really benefited from this and we will make this uh, useful discussion available to the supervisory community. We will incorporate as part of our training programs. And you really have our gratitude. Thanks for taking time from your very busy time during this very difficult uh, time in the global economy. So thank you and I will, uh, you know, gracias, danke. And also namaste, right? So take care and we'll see you again. You kicked ass. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.